Please open your Bible to Matthew 27. Matthew 27. And we are in the uh, last few weeks of our series in Matthew that began in September or October of, I don't even remember what year, 2020. And what a journey it has been. And we are coming to Matthew's climax, the climax of his gospel, as Christ continues his lonely journey to the cross. Over the past few weeks, we've seen how Jesus has been betrayed by his disciple, abandoned by the rest of them, falsely accused by the chief priests and elders, and now he's been handed over to Pilate, the Roman governor of the region. Every paragraph, every sentence that we encounter of this narrative, it just reeks of injustice as the innocent one is condemned. But while the stain of sin shows prominently on these pages, the sovereign love of God is behind every single thing that takes place. This is what Matthew has been showing us each step of the way. He begins this entire section in Matthew 26 with the words of Jesus. And if if your Bible is open to Matthew, flip back over to Matthew 26, verse 2. And this is what Jesus says to the disciples. You know that after two days, the Passover is coming. And the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Jesus tells them, you you know what's coming. And how do they know what's coming? Because Jesus has already told them before that, multiple times, what's coming. Jesus knew the difficult road that he was called to walk. And he knew the challenge that it would be for them, the crisis of faith that these disciples would encounter. And so Jesus, in his kindness and compassion, prepares them telling them what's going to happen again and again. So Matthew records this in Matthew 16, just after Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God, Matthew writes, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Then a short time after that, about a week after that, Jesus tells his disciples in Matthew 17, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill Him, and He will be raised on the third day. Then again in Matthew 20, Jesus is even more explicit. Listen to what He says there. Matthew 20, verse 18 and 19. See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn Him to death and deliver Him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified and he will be raised on the third day. So as we come to our text today, and the two scenes we're about to encounter, I want us to have these passages, these words of Jesus in the back of our minds. Through Matthew 26 and 27, we are encountering some of the most tragic events in human history. Witnessing the most horrific miscarriage of justice. Hearing and seeing the most damning statements and actions that people could ever make. But whether we're tempted to be cold from familiarity or heavy with discouragement as we read these scenes, we cannot fail to see the sovereign hand of God at work to save a people from their sins. That's what's taking place. For God so loved the world that he sent his only son to walk this path to the cross. None of what is taking place is a surprise to God. None of it is outside of the providence of God. This is why the Son of Man came, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is why Jesus stands in silence before false accusations. 
Not because things are spiraling out of control and he doesn't know what to do, but because his father is in complete control. This is the path he must walk. This is the pain he must face. This is the suffering he must endure. And he does it for us and for our salvation. For God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So as we see this tragedy unfold, as we come to grips with these really devastating and dark scenes, let us not fail to see the astonishing love of God put on display as Jesus Christ goes to the cross. And we're going to walk through this text uh, just under two headings, looking at two scenes. Most of our time is going to be spent on scene one. Scene one is the condemnation. Scene one, the condemnation, verses 15 to 26. Let's just look at the beginning here. Matthew 27, verse 15. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. Matthew here is setting the stage. He begins by reminding when all of this is taking place. It's during the feast, and that feast is the Passover. And during this time, Jerusalem would be filled with people celebrating this feast that remembers God's deliverance of his people out of slavery from Egypt. And this feast, it functioned as this sign of the covenant that God made with his people, that he would be their God and they would be his people. And so Matthew tells us that that Pilate has a custom during this feast. He would release a prisoner, pardoning someone who has been condemned. And by Roman law, the governors of various regions, they were given this power. They could pardon a criminal. It had nothing to do with the Passover, that Roman law, but, but Pilate had decided, I'm going to make this my custom during the Passover to release a prisoner. Now, why would he do this? Well, Pilate, he was all about his power and his reputation. And if he could do something that could enhance his reputation and also put on display his power, then he was all about it. He was like, sign me up. And the crowds, they like the show. Something's happening, so they're there. So this crowd of people comes during the feast as Pilate sits on his judgment seat before this crowd, as is his custom, and he is ready to release for them one prisoner. Then Matthew immediately introduces us to a prisoner, one he describes as notorious, someone who is well known for all the wrong reasons. Look at verse 16. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. Now Barabbas, we're familiar with it because we've read these stories. Barabbas was an unusual name. It's a name that means son of the father. And this name was really more of a nickname and it was often used to refer to the son of a rabbi. So it's likely that this Barabbas was not just famous for doing bad things, he was the well-known son of a famous man. Now, why was he in prison, though, this Barabbas? Well, Mark and Luke, they both tell us that he was a murderer and an insurrectionist. Uh, to be an insurrectionist means that Barabbas was a man who wanted to overthrow the Roman government. He wanted to lead a revolt, and he was willing to kill in order to accomplish this. Not a good dude. He is a man known for his rebellion and his violence. So Matthew introduces us to Barabbas. Son of the Father, a murderer, the leader of a rebellion against Rome. And Pilate asked the gathered crowd a question. 
Look at verse 17. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you? Barabbas or Jesus, who is called the Christ? This is the choice that is presented to the people. Barabbas or Jesus? Now why does Pilate give the people this choice? Well, he knows firsthand about Barabbas. And Barabbas is a big problem both for him and for the Jewish people. He's such a big problem that the Romans already have a cross ready for him. They have a crucifixion that's planned for that day, just a few hours later. And it's not just for Barabbas, it's also for two other men who were also insurrectionists. Pilate not only knows about how awful Barabbas is, but he also has just been with Jesus, who Matthew tells us in verse 14 has left Pilate amazed. Barabbas or Jesus? It should be a pretty easy answer for the crowd. But Matthew wants us to know more. He tells us more. Pilate, for all of his great flaws and his love of power, he was still discerning. Look what Matthew writes in verse 18. For Pilate knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Pilate knows this is all a sham. The chief priests and elders, they're not interested in justice. Pilate, uh, Jesus is brought to Pilate, not for the sake of the Roman kingdom, not for justice, but because of envy, out of rivalry. The religious leaders are not wanting to uphold the law. They just want to get rid of the man who is upsetting the status quo for them. The guy who has shown up in Jerusalem and has told them that they're wrong. Now there's a saying, you've probably heard it, it takes one to know one. And Pilate was a man who knew all about power and a love of power, and he wanted to do all that he could to preserve his own power. But when he looked over and he saw the chief priests and the elders, he saw a group of men doing the exact same thing. It takes one to know one. He saw a group of men who loved their power and wanted to preserve their power. But Jesus threatened all of this. So out of envy, he recognizes that they deliver him over to Pilate. But that's not all. Matthew tells us something else. Matthew tells us still more that clearly tilts the scales in Jesus' favor. Look at verse 19. Besides, while Pilate was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. So picture the scene. As Pilate is seated as judge before the crowd, as he's exercising his power over the people, as he is as a governor playing this whole situation to serve his own ends, a message is sent to him from his wife. This man is righteous. Have nothing to do with him. Now Pilate, he seems already convinced of the innocence of Jesus. And now his wife goes beyond even this idea and tells Pilate, Pilate that this man isn't just innocent, he is righteous. And in some ways, the effect of her dream, it's interesting, this is the only time that Pilate's wife ever shows up in Scripture. She makes this one-verse cameo in all of the Bible. And in some ways, it's similar to the, the cameo that the, the wise men have in Matthew 2. Uh, Matthew tells us about these Gentiles from the East who, who journey from the East to meet the one who is the king of the Jews, to come and worship him. And they come and do that. And then before they leave, they have a dream. 
And in that dream, they are warned not to go back to Herod. And that warning is a means of testifying to who Jesus is and protecting Jesus. Now here in Matthew 27, there is this other Gentile dream. What do these two dreams have in common? They both truly testify to who Jesus is. He is righteous. He is the king. And these Gentiles have dreams that not only point to this truth, but they aim to protect Jesus. But as this scene is unfolding around Pilate's judgment scene, judgment seat, something far more sinister is taking place among the crowds. Look at verse 20. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The very men meant to protect the people of God. Those meant to stand in and for the people of God are persuading the crowd to ask for the destruction of the very Son of God. Now I've mentioned before how, how Jesus represents the temple. He is the new temple. This meeting place between God and man. The very presence of God among the people of God. And here the religious leaders of Jerusalem, you remember how much they love the temple. They're calling for this temple to be destroyed. When Pilate comes back to the crowd, look at what he asks in verse 21. The governor again said to them, which of the two of you do you want me to release for you? This is essentially the same question that Pilate's already asked in verse 17. He's pressing the point. And Matthew writes in a, a simple and devastating manner. And they said, Barabbas. Given the choice between a violent insurrectionist and the very son of God, the people call out for the criminal. Pilate then asks another question, and notice that this is all Pilate ever does in Matthew. He asks questions. That's all he's got. For a man so power-hungry, you would think that he would have more of a backbone, right? Like that he would be, there would be fewer questions and more commands. He knew what was right, and he is choosing to look the other way. As C.S. Lewis once said, Pilate, he was merciful until it became risky. And Pilate shows himself to not be powerful at all, but weak. Not ruling, but being ruled by the crowd. Not courageous, but a coward. Look at his question in verse 22. Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called the Christ? They all said, Let him be crucified. And he said, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Let him be crucified. Here we have one of the most tragic declarations in a whole scene that's filled with tragic declarations. The people choose Barabbas over Jesus, and now they cry out for the death of Jesus. As one hymn says, A murderer they save. The prince of life they slay. Now why crucifixion? Why let him be crucified? For the Jewish leaders, this is exactly what they wanted. They wanted Jesus completely discredited, completely disgraced, completely cursed. And this is exactly what Jewish law teaches about crucifixion. Deuteronomy 21-23 says that someone who is hung on a tree is cursed by God. 
So crucifixion stands as this sign to the Jewish people of being under God's curse. And in the people's cry that Jesus be crucified, irony abounds. The leaders think that this will curse Jesus and that they will win. But they have no idea that this is precisely what Jesus came to do. Paul testifies to this in Galatians 3.13 and he says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Jesus' purpose is to take on on the curse of sin, the curse that all sinners deserve, the curse that we deserve. And he takes on that curse, not begrudgingly, but willingly, for our sake in order to redeem us. And now all those who repent of their sins and place their faith in Jesus, they don't have to face that curse. They no longer need to face the wrath of God for their sins because Jesus became a curse for you. But Matthew is not done showing the cowardice of Pilate and the guilt of the crowd. Look at verse 24. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. The idea of of washing your hands of something in order to claim no responsibility for it, it's it's a common phrase for us in our culture, but it was not something that the Romans did. It was not part of their culture. It was a, a Jewish tradition. And here Pilate uses it to make his point that he states explicitly, hey, this is not my problem. And I'm going I'm to show you, I'm going to mock you by showing you that it's not my problem by washing my hands in front of you. He wants to claim that he is innocent. But then the scene ends with, with Pilate having Jesus scourged and delivered over to be crucified. Let's read 25 and 26. I'd said everything's a question. It looked like Pilate just made a statement at the end of verse 24. I'm innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. But the people took it as a question, and they all answered. His blood be on us and on our children. Verse 26. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. This scourging is a brutal form of torture that that often led to death. And just after claiming innocence, not my problem, Pilate condemns Jesus, the only innocent one, to be crucified. Look again at what he says. I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. Now, if you're here last week or if you read earlier in Matthew 27, this might sound familiar. And if you look back at Matthew 27, verse 4, we have Judas coming to the chief priests and elders. And Judas has changed his mind about betraying Jesus. And he comes to them in verse 4 and he says, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. They tell Judas the exact thing that Pilate now tells them. But it's all a lie. It's all a delusion. Though they might not want it to be their problem, the innocent blood of Jesus stains every one of them. Consider the response of the crowd in verse 25. 
This climax of our scene is this damning declaration. His blood be on us and on our children. As the innocent one, the only righteous one, the Son of God and Son of Man, the Messiah stands before them. The crowd takes full responsibility for this injustice, for Christ's condemnation. Let his blood be upon us. One commentator describes this as the lowest and perhaps saddest verse in the Bible. Last week I mentioned how as Jesus, as Matthew is telling the story of Jesus through the history of Israel, Jesus stands as a fulfillment of, of Jeremiah. And I pointed to Jeremiah 26.15, where Jeremiah, he, in Jeremiah 26, he's declared God's word in the temple to the religious leaders, to the chief priests and elders. He has warned them of the judgment to come if they reject God's word. And he says this in Jeremiah 26.15, Only know for certain that if you put me to death, you will bring innocent blood upon yourselves and upon this city and its inhabitants. For in truth, the Lord sent me to you to speak all these words in your ears. And now, as the Word made flesh stands before the people, they invite His judgment upon themselves. In their riot and in their rage, they cry out for His blood to be upon them. And as we watch this scene unfold, we shouldn't just think about them way back then who invite judgment upon themselves. You know, it can seem so, so long ago, 2,000 years ago, so detached from who we are today, all we experience today. But I mentioned this last week. None of us can escape the blood of Jesus. It's on us. There's no escape from His blood. And this blood will either be upon you for condemnation, your voice is that voice crying out, let Him be crucified, or His blood will be upon you for forgiveness. It is charged to you for your condemnation because in the voice of the crowd, we should hear our own. Left to ourselves, this is our cry. In our sin and in our rebellion, in our failure to acknowledge and worship and follow God as He deserves. We are those who, who reject Him. We turn away from Him. We choose Barabbas instead of Jesus. Or it can be blood that is upon you for your redemption. It is the blood of the new covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. It is a blood that cleanses us from all unrighteousness. A blood that delivers us out of darkness and into light. So this cry of the crowd, His blood be upon us, is a cry for condemnation, or it can be a cry for mercy. Amen. And may that be our cry. May we with gratefulness receive the mercy seen in the shed blood of Jesus Christ for our sins. Even as He stands condemned, Jesus is condemned for us. That's scene one, the condemnation. Scene two is the coronation. We see this in verses 27 through 31. After witnessing the condemnation of Jesus, this scene, which we're going to consider a little bit more briefly, turns to the coronation of Jesus. And once again in this scene, as in all of Matthew 26 through 28, irony abounds. 
This is a dark scene, a heavy scene. And I want to read these verses together and then I'm going to make some observations. Matthew 27, verse 27 through 31. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters. And they gathered the whole battalion before him. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. Now I think if we were tasked with writing about this scene, we would have spent a lot of time describing the terrible and gruesome suffering of Jesus. What is taking place is horrific. And all the more so when this is being done to God himself. But Matthew is interested not in describing the, the suffering of Jesus, the horrific nature of his suffering, but in pointing to truth about Jesus. So we must ask, what is his point? Well, Matthew makes his point through the structure of this text. And I mean, as we've seen just on every page of Matthew, it's the, the genius and creativity of God is just remarkable as he reveals himself to us. It's beautiful. And this whole scene, this little scene, these five verses, they're structured in what is called a chiasm. A chiasm. C-H-I-A-S-M. A chiasm. A chiasm is a, a series of statements that are made, and then they're repeated in reverse order. So it's like ideas, and then a mirror, and then those ideas again. The statement, when the going gets cut tough, the tough get going, is a chiasm. The first statement is reflected in the second. But chiasms will often contain an extra idea right in the middle to emphasize a certain point. And that's what Matthew does here. Look at the structure of this text. Verse 27 begins with the soldiers leading Jesus somewhere. 27 again. The, then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters and they gathered the whole battalion before him. Now a battalion was about 600 Roman soldiers. So the soldiers lead Jesus into this place. And look at the very end of this paragraph. It ends with the soldiers leading Jesus somewhere. They led him away to crucify him. The two ideas reflected in one another. Hmm, that could just be a happy coincidence, right? No, let's keep going. Verse 28. And the soldiers, they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. The same thing happens in reverse in verse 31. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him. In verse 29. The soldiers, they twist together a crown of thorns and they put it on his head. Then they put a reed in his right hand. Then at the end of verse 30, this is mirrored again. They take the reed from him and they strike him on the head. After putting the reed in his hand in verse 29, the soldiers kneel before him. A mocking sign of, of reverence and honor. At the beginning of verse 30, they spit on him, 
a mocking distortion of a kiss of homage. So we've seen these ideas reflected, reflected, reflected. Now we get to the center. What's Matthew's point? Right in the middle of the text, the second half of verse 30. Kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. Now for the Romans, this whole scene is meant as a mockery of a coronation. That's what they're doing. They mean this cry as mockingly ironic. This man claims to be a king. That was Pilate's first question to him. Are you the king of the Jews? He claims to be a king. We'll show you what kind of king you are. Here, take one of our royal robes. It's a sign of royalty. Let's put this crown upon your head, this crown of thorns as a sign of your authority. We'll put this reed in your hand as a sign of your power. And then we'll kneel before you and worship you and say, Hail, King of the Jews. But there's a far deeper irony that the Roman soldiers, then the Roman soldiers intend. Because this, this horrific scene meant to disgrace Jesus, to belittle Jesus, is a fulfillment of what Matthew has been talking about since Matthew 1 verse 1. If you remember back to the very beginning of Matthew, he introduces us. This, this is a, a book of the beginning of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. This theme of kingship plays out throughout Matthew. The, the king is born, as you remember, into the family of David. Jesus, Matthew shows him to be a descendant of David. He grows up in Bethlehem, the city of David. He is exiled from his home, so he has to go north to Galilee. He returns to Jerusalem to cries of Hosanna, the city of David. The son of David has come. He conquers through his humility. He suffers righteously. And now he is being coronated as king. What the soldiers do as a means to mock Jesus Matthew is showing that this Jesus is indeed the king. He is the son of David. He is the promised one whose throne will be established forever. He is the one that Israel has been waiting for. Jesus is the king. And Matthew is showing his readers, he's showing us that indeed the king has come. But he has come not as the Jews expected, not as the Romans feared, but according to the sovereign plan of God. For God made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And here the soldiers, they, they take Jesus with their intention to mock him. They, they give him a crown of thorns. Thorns that represent God's curse upon the ground because of Adam's sin. This curse is now placed upon the head of Jesus. Brothers and sisters, he bears our griefs. He carries our sorrows. The soldiers, they strike Jesus with a reed, a symbol of Jesus being stricken, smitten, and afflicted by God. Jesus Christ comes not as a violent insurrectionist to overthrow the Roman oppressors. Not as one bowing down to the chief priests and elders and making them great. But as a king who comes to take away the sins of the world. As one who comes as Savior, bearing the sins of many, making intercession for the transgressors. So the question before us is then this. Which king will you have? 
Who will be your savior? You know, Pilate asked this question 2,000 years ago. Who will you have, Barabbas or Jesus? You now, the choice was only between those two at that time. But we are confronted with that question every day in one form or another. Which savior will you have? Which king will you have? What are you living for? Who are you living for? What is your hope? Do you want Barabbas and, and the power to do things on your own and to press through and accomplish all that you can accomplish and be all you can be? Do you want Caesar? Is Caesar your king? The one who up above you can give you everything that you want and make your life, give you your best life now? Or do you want Jesus? Jesus, the one who came and took God's curse upon himself for you. You want Jesus, the one who came as a servant to lay his life down for the ransom of many. Do you want Jesus, who is our only hope for salvation? When we come to these scenes, Christ's condemnation, his coronation, and the next week his crucifixion, we are coming to the very crux of all of human history. At the cross, the cross that makes this statement about us, about every one of us, this curse should be on you because of your sin. This is what you deserve because of your sin. And you are hopeless on your own. There's no digging yourself out of this hole. It doesn't matter how hard you work. It doesn't matter how much you do. You cannot remove this, the stain of your sin. You cannot change the devastating damage that is done by sin. But here at the cross, brothers and sisters, we see the astonishing, astounding love of God seen in the good news of the gospel. Because in the gospel, God enters our story of ruin and failure. And he offers his cheek to us. He is struck for us. All to turn on its head our, our project of trying to save ourselves and turn it into his wonderful story of salvation. So brothers and sisters, all those who are here, may you look to Jesus, the Lamb of God who was slain for your sins. And may you put your trust and hope in him and him alone. Would you pray with me? Father, these scenes that we encounter in this text are dark and devastating and damning to us. But what a hope we have in your Son who didn't go to the cross because nothing else worked out. But he went to the cross out of obedience to your call. He went to the cross for us and for our salvation. He was cursed so that all those who place their faith in him don't have to be cursed, don't have to face that curse, don't have to face your wrath. And so, Lord, for those who have placed their faith in Jesus, would we rest in the goodness of your mercy, the finality of what you have accomplished for us? And may we live for your glory. For those who are still dead in their sins, walking in darkness, Lord, would you soften their hearts to this good news of the gospel? Would you help them to see that you welcome all who come, all who are weary, all who are weighed down by sin, 
and you carry their burdens. Lord, would, would all those who are walking in the darkness of sin repent and turn to you in faith. Lord, be glorified in us, in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.